Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, and observations of life written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. I'm Peter Jay. And I'm Sue Wade. Join us as we share and enjoy today's stories as told by the authors themselves. And now, let's say hello to the writers for today's program. Hi, I'm Sue Wade. Hi, this is Kathy Salzberg. Hi, this is Bill Wiley. Hello, I'm Gail Alcaris. Hi, I'm Carol Belcher. Hello, I'm Pat Winiarski. Hi, everyone. I'm Alice Judge. Good afternoon. I'm Joe Ewald. Hi, I'm Faith Flaherty. Now, in our last episode, our last thrill-packed episode, we had a discussion at the end of the show about trying to emulate perhaps our favorite authors, a writing challenge, if you will. And so at this point, we are about to either exalt or trash the careers of, <laughs> of our favorite authors. <laughs> now, let me, let me put the disclaimer on. No authors were harmed in the production of this program. <laughs> so with that, Sue. Our first writer is Faith Flaherty. Okay, I accepted your challenge. Excellent. But I am not going to tell you who the author is because oh. it will be obvious after the first sentence. Aha. Aha. Call but, me Ishmael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. It was difficult, but it was fun because this story comes out five pages, and the most I've ever written of my wow. stories is wow. one. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. It has been a quiet week at the Franklin Senior Center, my center of gravity, the town that is the city in Norfolk County, Massachusetts, U.S. of A. Franklin is one of the 13 Massachusetts municipalities that have applied for and been granted a city form of government but wish to retain, quote, the town of, end quote, in their official name. Yes, that's my town, Franklin, Massachusetts. Lightning struck the bell tower at St. Mary's in Church Square, across from the Franklin Senior Center, and the conscientious ladies who work in the parish office were walking around with smug smirks on their faces. They told the new pastor that fixing that bell was a waste of money. Every time it's fixed, lightning hits. It just wasn't meant to be. Esperanza was wishing that the lightning would strike near her husband, Giuseppe. She didn't want to kill the old coot, just put some sense into his thick skull. After 55 years of marriage, she had had it. That stubborn old fool got worse with age. What particularly irked Esperanza was that Giuseppe never gave a definitive answer to anything. He would never say yes or no. If you asked him, do you like the president? He'd answer, what do you want to know for? When the children were little, they sometimes would play a game trying to get their father to commit to saying yes or no. Dad, do you like the casserole? It's okay. Dad, do you want any salt and pepper? It's seasoned enough. Dad, are you finished? Does it look like it? You would think Esperanza would be used to Giuseppe's ways by now. He was incapable of saying yes or no. That's the way he was. So here the couple found themselves in a rare heat wave in October going to a Halloween party at the senior center. It really was a hot and humid day, rare for that time of year. Heat lightning flashed here and there and hit the church bell tower. And Esperanza and Giuseppe were particularly uncomfortable because they were dressed up as Mickey and Minnie Mouse. To top it off, Gloria, the pretty lady at the desk, dressed as a queen, 
at the senior center desk wouldn't let them in to the Halloween party. It seems that they never signed up to attend because when Gloria asked Giuseppe if he and Esperanza were going to the party, Giuseppe didn't answer yes. He gave Gloria some cryptic response. How was she to know that maybe that's the day Esperanza has to babysit the grandkids was a positive reply, similar to the average person's yes. And when Esperanza asked Giuseppe if he had signed them both up for the Halloween party, he said, what would we wear? Esperanza could just shake that man silly, which was exactly what she was going to do when she saw and heard the thunder and lightning outside. And then the rain poured down. They couldn't go back home in that. In their Mickey and Minnie Mouse costumes, they would look like drowned rats. (laughs) Esperanza asked, do you think the storm will last long? And Giuseppe answered, they all end sooner or later. Esperanza sighed. Well, I might as well go to the computer room and check my email. And with that, Giuseppe headed to the pool room. When the cue ball hit the rack, the balls broke wide. He heard the thunder answer the solid hit antiphonally. If you took 12th grade English from Mrs. Holmes at Franklin High School, you would think of Emily Dickinson's poem, A Thunderstorm. The wind begun to rock the grass with threatening tunes and low. He flung a menace at the sky, a menace at the earth. The leaves unhooked themselves from trees and started all abroad, and dust did scoop itself like hands and throw away the road. The wagons quickened on the streets. The thunder hurried slow. The lightning swallowed a yellow beak and then a livid claw. The birds put up the bars to nest. The cattle fled to barns. There came one drop of giant rain, and then, as if the hands that held the dams had parted whole, the waters wrecked the sky, but overlooked my father's house just quartering a tree. Now how and why ten Tri-Valley area Methodist ministers were touring the senior center at that particular moment in time is a long digression that I'd rather skip, dear listener. People are so critical and questioning that they force the storyteller to spend too much time on descriptive, circuitous explanations rather than stick to the storyline. So I'll just say that the tours of the Tri-Valley Senior Centers were the idea of the president of the Methodist Conference in Massachusetts to observe the needs of the elder population since most of their church members were elders. So that is why 10 ministers were watching Mickey Mouse play pool. One problem with the good ministers walking into the pool room is that everyone had a story, or at least a comment, regarding the game of billiards, but no one commented on a giant mouse playing the game. I guess when you're a man or woman of God, discretion is a better part of valor. Accompanying the ministers was the Franklin Senior Center director, Karen Alves. She was the only one who noticed that Mickey Mouse was playing pool. As the ministers were advising Giuseppe how to bridge and execute and follow through, Esperanza walked in to hear the senior center director ask Giuseppe why he wasn't at the Halloween party. Giuseppe answered that he and his wife were told there was no room for them. The director said that she was sure that there were some guests who were no-shows. Would Giuseppe and Esperanza like to join the party? Before Esperanza could answer yes, Giuseppe responded, but I'm in the middle of eight ball. Esperanza smacked Giuseppe's cue stick across the pool table just as a clap of thunder climaxed into a crescendo. The ministers discreetly moved on. 
Well, that's the news from the Franklin Senior Center, where all the women are beautiful, all the men are exceptional, and all the grandchildren are cute and well-behaved. Very good. Garrison Keeler. Yes. Yeah, you, chose, wow. you chose a big challenge wow. on that one. What did you say? She, she guessed the correct Garrison. author. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Oh, Keeler, right? Yeah, yeah. Garrison Keeler, right? Yeah, wow. that's a, that's a How tall challenge. That? Oh yeah, you that's can get the challenge. beginning and you can yeah. get to the end. It's yeah. the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next reader is Joe Ewald. Hi, I'm Joe Ewald, and I decided to do two authors instead of one, and the title is "The Predicament of Unconditional Heroes" by F. Scott Fitzgerald and Charles Dickens. F. Scott Fitzgerald, he of the great Gatsby lore, once quoted, Show me a hero, and I'll write you a tragedy. Alas, J. Gatsby and his love for the infamous Daisy Buchanan. Or, going to Charles Dickens, the despondent character of Sidney Carton in the story of a tale of two cities. We'll start with him first. He took the place of a French aristocrat who looked just like him because he was married to a woman that Sidney loved but could not have. She only considered him a dear friend. So when her husband was condemned to die at the guillotine, he arranged with a jailer who he had done a favor to once before to switch places while he looked just like him. He thought his life was worthless, and he was a despondent, drunken lawyer. He loved this woman so much, he sacrificed his life for her. When it was his turn to be executed, they asked him if he had anything to say. Last words. He did. What he said is as follows. It is a far, far better thing that I do today than I have ever done before. It is a far, far better place that I go to than I have ever been. There is at least two reasons that Sidney Carton decided to do this. First, he thought his life was worthless because no one loved him. And in turn, he didn't love anybody until this woman came into play. Then he had a purpose to his life. He loved her so much, he was willing to spare his own life so she could be happy with her true love, who was in the name of her true love was Charles Evermont, the aristocrat. On this occasion, Sidney had time to think, about what he was doing. In the story, it tells that he was welcoming death with a fearless heart. All right, before we get to F. Scott Fitzgerald and his version of unconditional sacrifice, I'd like to explore another tale of a Navy SEAL who is exploring an enemy bunker somewhere in the Middle East with his comrades. Suddenly, a deadly high-powered explosive was tossed in the building. The Navy SEAL, who had just an instant to think, jumped on the explosive, which took his life. 
but saved the others. We're going to have another poll here. <laughs> Let's stop and ask ourselves, if you had a choice and you were in these situations, what would you choose to do? Number one, have time to think about it, like Sidney Carton did, or automatically go through with it, like the Navy SEAL did, saving, not worrying about himself, but saving his buddies first. Faith, what would you do? If I had the time, I would run and tell everybody, run, bomb, or whatever. But if I didn't, like if it was my grandchildren, anybody in my family, I think I would fall on it and mm-hmm. sacrifice myself. Pete? Uh, I'm going to profess to cowardice here. <laughs> uh, self-preservation is a really powerful mo- <laughs> but. One never really knows. Obviously, it depends right. on your relationship with the people immediately around you yeah. uh, and just your gut response to things. I am not sure. It, I think it really depends on the situation. Right. How much time? How much time? Who's around? Yeah. I think I'd probably do what the Navy SEAL did yeah, because I wouldn't think about right. it. Yeah. I wouldn't think about it if it was my family, right. my children, or my grandchildren. I wouldn't think about it. Right. I wouldn't even think about it if it was my dog, because I love him. <laughs> I love him better, there you, go. you know, there sometimes you go. better than my yeah, kids. Yeah, I would think I would do the same thing for my cats. <laughs> now that you bring up the pet aspect, Billy, what would you do? If, if with my friend Wendy, uh, <laughs> I might. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think. I'd... I don't really know. I think I'd have to be in the situation at the time and see what it is. If I knew that I was going to save my soul, yes, I would do it. If it was questionable or I was in a bad state to begin with, then I'd have to think otherwise. I don't know what I'd do, but I do have a friend who did that in Korea. He threw himself on a a bomb. bomb. Wow. I don't know what I'd do. Right. I don't know if I have the courage to do that. Right. Yeah. Or even if I have the courage to think about it. Yeah. Right. I agree with those who would have to assess the situation at the time. It would depend on many factors. Right. If it for yes. me, if it if it was gonna be quickly, it doesn't it has nothing to do with thinking. It has something to do with instinct yeah so my instinct is i would like jump on it but you don't have time to think your, yeah. in, your instincts take over especially my if you're gonna die anyway is, yeah. Yeah. Then, then, I, then i think i would then yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. okay thanks everybody and uh, for your honest and thanks, candid Joe. answers <laughs> second part the great gatsby i think most of our readers out there on the air might be familiar with this story um, the title is perfect because Jay Gatsby was great, so we'll soon find out. The Great Gatsby was written in 1925. At first, it was not well received by the public, partly because of the title. In the 1920s, great, they were anticipating a lot, and in their minds, they were let down. But as time went on, suddenly in the 1950s, started to make a comeback because of a different generation viewing the book as it was originally intended to be. Jay Gatsby was great because he loved Daisy Buchanan, who unfortunately was not worth it. The great deed that he did 
was when Daisy killed the wife of a garage owner that they knew very well. No one saw the driver, but they did recognize the car. What Gatsby did was to switch drivers, so he drove Daisy's car, and she drove his. So Wilson saw the car. So when he finally saw it and saw Gatsby driving it, he decided to murder him and shot him while he swam in a pool. I'm not sure if Gatsby knew that he was going to be shot. Maybe he did. But no matter how you look at it, he saved Daisy's life, if she deserved it or not. Maybe knowing her faults, like conditional love compared to his unconditional love, didn't change his mind about what he did. He sacrificed saving lives was the true spirit of love. Last but not least, the greatest sacrifice that ever was was the love of Jesus Christ when he sacrificed himself for us. Besides him, I myself often wondered how I would respond. My answer is you don't know until it happens. Saving a life is the best of times. Losing a life is the worst of times. And it is the ghost of lives past the ghost of lives present, and the ghost of lives future. And that is it. The end. You like that? I thought I was going to be a favorite talking about it. I thought the end was Charles Dickens. Yeah, it is. Oh, wait a minute. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay, our next reader is Alice Judge. Hi. My favorite author is Sue Grafton, who did the alphabet burners. And the thing is, when I went to the Internet, I didn't realize she had passed about two years ago, uh, and she had cancer. So her last book, she did the alphabet murders, and her last book is Why. So it'll be interesting to see who decides to do Z. But I love um, uh, her character, Kinsey Malhone. And uh, she writes in the first person, Sue Grafton. I always love the first person. And she's, Kinsey is a private investigator. She just makes ends meet. She, um, she works. She has a couple rooms in an insurance building. She used to work for the insurance company doing cases as a private eye or investigator. So they, uh, they, she does a couple of cases each year, and they give her the rooms. She uh, has been divorced twice. She has no pets, no, no children, and uh, she, she's just an eclectic character, Kinsey Malhone. And I just, you know, what you see is what you get, and I really do enjoy her. This is the first chapter of another uh, novel I'm doing. And it will illustrate, I hope, some of the things that um, Kinsey uh, says and does. There's no way you're staying, the guy behind the desk told me. I was in an armchair on the other side of the desk listening to this jerk, who until several seconds ago was my boss. Carl Dixon, director of Sandy Ridge, Maine's library, was a tall, thin, introverted man who never believed in smiling or laughing. He had all the librarians that worked for him under his somber thumb. The main desk was downstairs, 
and he enjoyed looking down from his glass office on the second floor. If one was to search his desk, they probably would find Dixon had a book, a diary of sorts, where he noted each indiscretion. The young woman being canned at the moment was me, Allison Peters, a resident of Sandy Ridge, a small coastal town not far from the New Hampshire border. I'm 26, visited here five years ago, fell in love with the quiet community, and moved into the seacoast town four years ago. I took this job as a librarian four weeks ago. After attempts to get back into the good graces of Bill Shaw, editor of The Courier, the town's daily newspaper, failed. For years, I had been a newspaper reporter, loved it. Shaw is volatile. I got nosy about his private life. He didn't like it, so he fired me. It looks like I'm on a roll. My creditors were calling that you can't write electronic checks if there's nothing in the checking account if you know what I mean. So I took the job as librarian. Two weeks into the job, Dixon gave me my first paycheck and invited me into his office. His assistant was there to take notes. I had been talking to the old ladies that volunteer at the library. Dixon didn't like that. After all, he hadn't spoken to these women or even smiled at them and all the time they volunteered. These little old ladies called him weird. I agreed, but thought I could handle it. The girl that was training me didn't think I was getting the complicated computer system, according to Dixon. That was the library network for all the towns around Sandy Ridge. Funny, Dixon had told me the first day of work that it would take a year to train. He wanted me to quit after two weeks, but I told him I would try harder. I wanted him to fire me, then I could collect unemployment. If so, Dixon and I had come to the point where we were now. I knew I wasn't a librarian. I was a newspaper reporter about how was I going to get into Bill Shaw's good graces again so he would give me my job back. Dixon was staring at me, wondering why I didn't leave, so I did. I walked down past the main desk where several librarians were talking. They knew I had been summoned into the great man's office. They knew what had happened, and they were pretending not to notice me. I went into the inner office, grabbed a sweater I had worn that morning against the early April chill, and walked out. As I walked out, I was aware of the looks on my back and how quiet the library had become. That's good. There shouldn't be any talking in the library. It was 10.30 in the morning. Might as well go over to the fast food place across the street. I brushed tears off my cheeks and blew my nose. I'm a compulsive overeater and go to Overeaters Anonymous meetings. I eat over what's bothering me. I had known after the first two weeks when Dixon spoke to me that he wanted me out. He was stiff. I was an extrovert. Forget it. Have a double cheeseburger, fries, and a shake, I told myself. And that's what I did. The food was yummy. The button on my skirt was tight. So I decided to walk home. I live close enough to town so that I can walk back tonight and get my car. Once out of the restaurant, guilt took over. I looked at my reflection in the glass window as I passed. The fast food was turning to granite in my stomach, and I looked pregnant. Oh, fat chance. Oh, bad choice of words. I haven't had a date in months. I also haven't gone to an OA meeting in weeks. I needed to get my food in order. 
I needed to get another life. I needed another job. The library was eight-tenths of a mile from my townhouse. I knew the exact mileage because I had a pedometer and measured it when I walked up there. I drove when I worked because I was always a little late. Oops, that could be another reason why I was fired. I had gotten compulsive about my walking and would walk uptown around my neighborhood and my favorite place to walk in the morning was around the path that abutted the ocean. It was tranquil to look out at the Atlantic Ocean, smell the flowers of the season. Maybe I should go there this afternoon to think about what I'm going to do next. But coming through my condo parking lot, I noticed Peggy, my friend, was home. I had gotten to know Peggy Gibbons when she moved into the townhouse next to mine last year. She worked at an insurance agency in the town over... Muffy, my cat, had actually introduced us. For weeks, I would have trouble finding Muffy at different times of day. I finally saw her once in front of Peggy's door, saw Peggy let Muffy in. When I knocked on her door, introduced myself, and Peggy invited me in, Muffy was in her kitchen chopping away at food. Muffy is a scavenger. I don't think there is anything she doesn't eat. We make a good pair. Peggy told me she thought Muffy was a stray. I wanted to point out Muffy's rabies tag, a cute little heart on her pink collar. But I liked Peggy at once, and I wanted a friend. So Muffy commuted between Peggy's, where my cat had her own pillow to sleep on and looked like King Tut. I kept encouraging Peter to get her own cat from the Humane Society in town. Maybe I'll get her one for Christmas. At first, I was embarrassed by Muffy eating with such gusto, but I found my new friend sincere and down to earth with a hearty laugh, and I felt comfortable with her. Putting my key in the lock, I looked over at Peggy's condo, retreated down my steps, and knocked at her door. Peggy looked out her bay window. I waved. She opened the door. Hi, I began. I saw your car in the lot. How come you're home? Are you sick? She smiled. No, I'm training a new girl, so I'll go in this afternoon. What about you? I told her I got fired. Can you believe it? Peggy stepped aside. Come in, have some coffee, and tell me all about it. You had me at the first three sentences. Oh, no, that's one of the things I think you do really well is what you did is you started the whole thing off actually with dialogue which is always an interesting twist. So through the dialogue, what they're saying to each other, suddenly you know what's going on by sentence number three. It's a great start. Thank you. Our next reader is Pat Winiarski. Hello, I'm Pat Winiarski. I chose poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar to emulate uh, in my piece. He wrote a very simple poem entitled The Sparrow. Anyone who has been to the farm stand slash bakery on Diamond Hill Road in Cumberland knows that there are many sparrows flitting around. So I wrote so I wrote a poem using Paul Lawrence Dunbar's style, porch sitting. Oh, the sparrows do abound, waiting for crumbs to hit the ground. Perched on the arms of rocking chairs, they wait patiently with unwavering stares. Bits of muffin, bits of cake, just itching for the take. Ah, 
A speck of pie has caught one's eye. Swooping down to grab the treat, his chums soar down, wanting the sweet. It is a hilarious scene to watch, passing summer days on the farm stand's porch. Good. Oh, Very awesome. good. Awesome. Well done. Yeah, bravo. Yeah, you really captured yeah, the meter. Great. Nice. Yeah, that was you. very done. He, Paul Lawrence Dunbar rhymed every two lines. Mm. Mm-hmm. That was well done. Thank and our you. Next, our next reader is Carol Belcher. Hi. I chose Irma Bombeck oh, as my her. person <laughs> to emulate. Excellent. She was a humorist and columnist. The family ties that bind and gag. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think now. I often wonder if what I remember is fact or wishes. There have been many, many memorable events in my life that I am not sure anymore. Let me think now. Of course, my wedding was a fact, but some of the surrounding events, often wishes. Then there were the births of my children. Of course, they were facts, but weren't there some wishes in there, too? We lived in the boondocks for 12 years, and I'm pretty sure there were many wishes in connection with that. We wished for a TV. We wished we had an oil furnace and not coal. We wished we never had mice or even rats, which came from the chicken houses across the street. When we finally moved from there, we wished our new home was a little bigger to accommodate four kids and grandpa. We stayed there just one year and we wished we had rented and not bought the house. Our new home had four bedrooms and two baths and was big enough to hold us all comfortably. That was a fact. Life was well lived for 30 years in that house. There were graduations, weddings, grandchildren, and even funerals that were all facts with still more wishes thrown in. Let me think now. Life went on through retirement, widowhood, and several moves. I know these were all facts, but I wish I could change some things. I can't, though, so accept the facts I will. However, I still will wish a little. Very good. Very good. I love the way you capture. Was that a true story? Yes. Because I get yeah, I like, you pull me in. Yeah, I, I like <laughs> the, the way, red shoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the way you intertwine wishes and facts. Yeah. yeah. That was great. That was that well. also too is it that, was. Uh, Irma Bombeck you know, brought a lot of humanity to her work. Right. And I, I got evidence of that and it was very nice. And our next reader is Gail Alcaraz. Right. Uh, I wasn't here for the last meeting, so I, I don't have anyone to emulate. But um, this She's, is... Uh, Gail Alcaris is going to be emulating the great writer Gail Alcaris. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Boston. This is the city of Boston, the home of the bean and the cod, where the Lowells speak only to Cabots, and the Cabots speak only to God. I do not mean to demean them by that bit of doggerel. Everyone will admit that it is an insular city. If I tell someone that I'm moving to Grafton, they quickly point out, you mean Groton. I guess I have a Boston accent because when we took a trip to Kansas, everyone pointed out, you have a Boston accent. I told them, you all have an accent, I don't. Where I grew up was very insular. I had to stay on my side of the street and not go up the hill on one side nor down the hill on the other, except 
for snow sledding when the street was closed to through traffic so the big boys could grab a hold of someone's bumper they were iron in those days and get a ride up the hill there were only a very few cars anyway and john's car which was parked in the street despite the two-car garage the house had but it wasn't included in the monthly rent you could get an extra five dollars a month for renting the garage separately we played mostly in somebody's yard or in the field next door to where i lived it wasn't really optimal as no one cut the grass it was mostly good for hide-and-seek if you lay flat among the weeds and didn't mind all the stickaburrs. My parents told me it had originally been a barnyard with a big horse stable in the middle. They told how when I was a baby I was put out on a blanket to get the sun while the adults sipped tea nearby. Then a horse bolted from the stable and galloped right up to my blanket and jumped over me and kept on going full speed ahead. Please, no comments about he must have kicked you in the head. (laughs) About a few years later, the barn burned down one night and was destroyed, along with all the animals within. The neighbor whose barn it was lived nearby and continued to scare the living daylights out of all the neighborhood children. She wore a long black dress and a matching veil. No one else in our world looked like that. We knew people came to America from someplace else, but they quickly changed to American dress and language. Soon the boys started to tease her and all searched the ground for buried treasure. One day my friend Pauline was caught by this woman who hit her with a switch, as she called it. That evening Pauline's mother went over to have a few words and dragging the reluctant but striped back daughter with her. When Zaza, she told us her name, she apologized and said she was so frightened that someone would be badly hurt and fall into the sub-basement of the barn. After that, we were invited into her house to see her bird. In my mind, it was a minor bird, but I could only recall that black birds who spoke words and lived with an old woman with long black dresses were witches. I never went back. I guess I'm not a proper Bostonian. And I've never really met a Brahmin, although I do have a friend who is one of the 400, but I've come to appreciate the whys and wherefores of said people. They have their rules and the reasons for them, and I appreciate that and give them credit for standing by them. In another generation, they'll all be gone, and will we ever know what we're missing? I love the descriptions. Our next reader is Bill Wiley. Hi, I'm Bill, and uh, I wrote an- another one of my poems. It's, it's called Beauty, and it's, and it's not about women. <laughs> it's about flowers and stuff. The beautiful flowers begin to grow. The beauty inside them sure does show. Tiger lilies by my back door. This beauty surrounds me, that's for sure. Raspberries outside of my front lawn. A pint a day till they are gone. I feel so happy with this beauty all around. You never know where it will be found. A small wildflower by my back fence. Sometimes they may grow very dense. Some pink flowers grow by the sidewalk. So nice. I photograph them all. It's just like paradise. The flowers grow, then soon die away. But next year they'll be back on a bright sunny day. I scream and shout and thank the Lord for this beauty. I capture them with my photos. It is my duty. 
Very good, very good. Our next reader is Kathy Salzberg. Hello. This story is called The Honey Trap, and I wrote it, I'll give you the intro, in the voice and spirit of Alexander McCall Smith, author of the num number one ladies' detective agency series, the Isabel Dalhousie novels, and the 44 Scotland Street series, which takes place in Scotland, where the author comes from, and are filled with his wit, humor, and obvious love of his fellow countrymen. My best friend Mary was obviously worried. Her beloved dad, a recent widower and a tenured history professor at the local university, had fallen in love with a much younger woman, and she strongly suspected his new paramour was after his money. I've only met this person a couple of times, Claire is her name, but there's just something about her, Mary told me, her voice trailing off. I could tell she was disturbed, obviously at war with herself for entertaining these suspicions, but the idea of some unknown young woman swooping in to make off with his fortune, not to mention what should rightfully be her inheritance, was obviously occupying her mind. That, and of course she told herself, the very real possibility of breaking the old gentleman's heart. Every time I've talked with her, no matter what the topic, it always comes around to money, she continued. When he brought her to my house to introduce us, the first thing she said was, this place must have cost you a pretty penny, at least a half a million, am I right? She told me she also loves my father's place and his new boat, a cabin cruiser and she recently took it upon herself to have some pieces of his art collection appraised. I came across the valuation report. That doesn't sound good, I commented. Have you spoken to him about this? Oh, yes, but he became quite annoyed with me, Mary said. He told me that Claire is from a foreign country, and she is just curious about the price of things here. My dad goes to a bank with the bank manager happens to be a personal friend of the family. He recently told me, on the QT of course, that Dad had been thinking about giving Claire signing rights on his deposit account. Now I was really concerned. There must be a way, I mumbled. We need to make a plan to derail your father's blind infatuation with this gold digger. I immediately thought of a friend of mine who had quite a reputation as a ladies' man, now in his mid-thirties and still as handsome as a movie star, Steve was a popular party guest, particularly with females. Perhaps I could invite him to a dinner party at my place when Mary's dad and Claire were also present and get him to turn his charms on her full throttle, maybe even to persuade her to meet up with him some evening. Then it would become obvious to Mary's dad that his new lady love was not to be trusted. Steve had been used to women lusting after him since he was a teenager. Having women fall for him was nothing new, since he had also been in love with himself all his life. <laughs> <laughs> to convince him to perform this rescue of Mary's father might not be all that difficult. When it came to a narcissist like Steve, I figured flattery could get you everywhere. <laughs> Thank you.
did you want to um, continue that? Well, he had a similar chapter in one of his books mm-hmm. where he arranged a situation like that. So I kind of just followed his followed, lead yeah, yeah, on yeah. how he managed, what he thought about it. Yeah. Strong so. setup. It looks Very good, yeah. 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 Sounds good as always. Very good. And I wrote about Diana Gabaldon, who is a historical fiction writer. Her stories all include history, romance, and some science fiction. She's known for really good de- character development, and she is the author of the Outlander series. So here we go in an attempt to emulate her. Okay, for once, the rain had stopped and the mo- full moon shone brightly. We rode into camp, and there he stood, tall, imposing, self-assured, his blue-black hair lifted in the wind. His light-colored eyes sparkled as the stars above. Ruggedly handsome, every girl's idea of tall, dark, and handsome. Yet he was hard, cold, unfeeling, not listening to me about the fact I had never been on a horse and could and insisted that I could walk the two weeks it would take to get to Skye. And there was William, tall, blonde, kind, patient, and the best smile I had ever seen. He had left the group and came to find me with an extra horse. I can't tell you how many times he picked me up till I was able to stay on the horse. As we rode, we talked about his life on the Isle of Skye in the year of 1495. He owned his own farm or croft. He grew up with Robert and could tell me tales of when they were small boys, two men so opposite, yet best of friends. We rode to where the other horses were. Now, mistress, you may slide off the horse. Oh, sure, high ground, here I come, I stated. I shall catch you, mistress, and he had, sliding off the horse right into his arms, his strong, solid, sturdy arms. Be still, my heart. You can't fall in love with the first guy you meet here, I thought to myself. William showed me how to care for my horse. Then he brought me to where I, near the fire and found me a seat on a log and brought me a bowl of stew. It was watery, grayish in color with a questionable amount of meat. Was it squirrel or rabbit? Who knew? No vegetables, normally bread to thicken it up. William walked off to speak with Robert. I must say, she is stubborn. I found her walking on the road following us, William smiled. Stubborn and irritating. What makes you think I will do as she says, Robert sighed. The same thing that makes her think the same when you do, having her commands followed. William, why would you say such a thing? Robert glared. Because I have listened to you and your father speak to all of us in the same manner. William smiled to his leader. I shall sleep near her this night and protect her. And who are you protecting her from, Robert scoffed. Looking around, and mostly for yourself, you shall not bed this one, William said firmly. And William, have you told her of your wife? I would say it's, it is none of your business. William stared at the ground. 
I would say it is by the way she looks at you. The lady has her own ideas on the subject. I want to know what's next. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, I have the visions of uh, the Outlander series in my head. It's definitely fit. <laughs> mm. I, I tr it's a hard one to follow because she hits in so many different points. Right, exactly. Now, since I was the one who put forward the challenge mm -hmm. uh, last month, I obviously am on board with this. I um, really enjoyed Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. And the four and a half other books in the increasingly ineptly named trilogy. Um, <laughs> uh, Douglas Adams started a second series as well, which was Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. He did only two books in that one, but they were also just as absurdist in form as mm -hmm. The Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, and so with that, my apologies to Douglas Adams. <laughs> A perfect world. We live in a complex world. Technology hasn't helped. It has made our imperfect world even more complex. So, in our imperfect world, we have technical complexity explainers. People like me. We help everyone else make all of our neat stuff actually do neat things. Perhaps in a perfect world, all aspects of life, love, and work would be simple, direct. The garbage in, garbage out rule would prevail, of course. Clearly, this is one of the first great immutable laws of a perfect universe. Just as energy can neither be created nor destroyed, but only transformed, in a perfect world, there would be a perfectly efficient way to convert garbage into electricity, electricity into neat stuff and food, and the neat stuff and food back to precisely the same amount of garbage. No entropy, no variables, no vagaries, no complexity. As we have five fingers on a hand, I would allow no more than five natural laws. The no pain, no gain rule also works as a reciprocal. No gain, no pain. A totally lossless, gainless, painless planet. I sense a galactic tourism opportunity here. However, as I have recently come to realize, in such a perfected and idyllic world, there would be no need for complexity explainers, and I'd have to find something else to do. <sighs> so... Let's just scrap the whole notion and get on with the business in our imperfect universe, which began with nothing but energy, the Big Bang. That was a while ago and is no longer front-page news. By now, we are probably most of the way through the neat stuff and food part. Eventually, the universe ends and is one giant super ball of fermenting garbage, the Big Dump. Naturally, the roaches and rats are fine with it, in fact, if not positively giddy. Then, God, being the industrious type, if not a bit fidgety, yells out, Hey, Nigel, watch this! He puts a match to the methane and the whole of it goes round all over again. Another Big Bang. Number 347, to be precise. <laughs> now, where was I? Oh, yes. I was in the middle of explaining something achingly technical and complex. Good. That's very much in his style. Take tongue, park firmly in cheek. Yes. <laughs> very very good. Yeah, definitely in his style. We are there once again at the thrilling conclusion of yet another hour. Yay us. A lot of good stuff. I was, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the number of people who actually really took it seriously. That's great. It was a challenge. True. It was. In our next get-together, fall is upon us. 
an interesting topic there. That has potential. I've already started writing something about it. There you go. <laughs> Do you have a story to tell? We would love to hear it. And if you would like to join us or our writers group, just call the Senior Center, 520-4945. And for our writers today, Faith Flaherty, Joe Ewald, Alice Judge, Pat Winiarski, Carol Belcher, Gail Alcaris, Bill Wiley, Kathy Salzberg, and I'm Sue Wade. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. For all of our writers, I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaningful experiences of life become a little larger when you share them. When you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR.